Welcome to Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Join us as we cover conservation updates, tips and tricks to campfire chats. Steve, how's it going? Good, how are you, Kyle? Very well, thanks. Good, good. You uh, still getting all that rain up there, Steve, or are you not too bad? No, uh... Summer might be on a Monday, Tuesday this year, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> How about you, Bill? How's things up in Smithers these days? It's been a wetter season for sure. Usually our May is our wet month here, and this year it's been June and early July. So good news is the forest fires that in May were a bit of a concern are looked after now and um, yeah. uh, up here anyways. So yeah, it's good news that way. Yeah, provincially, normally we're 25,000 hectares burnt or something by now. This year, we've only had about 650, so it's making work slow. Yeah. <laughs> are you in the office there, Bill? It looks like you're uh, are you working from home these days with all the stuff that's going on in the world. little of both. I'm in the office today just because I have um, some uh, items that we'll walk through and, and use as dis- demonstration items, but yeah, I'm kind of half and half in between the house and here. Cool. So we're going to get into some horn aging stuff here and uh, kind of the intent of uh, this Zoomcast was to uh, do an update on on horn aging for those guys that have been in the field before and uh, you've always been so generous coming to our show and, and talking about horn aging and, and doing a really good job and uh, I think the first one I did with you was about 10 years ago and uh, learned so much I think uh, with yourself and Andrew at the time Andrew Walker um, so always do a fantastic job and really appreciate it but we missed it this year we had the show canceled and everything so um, Naomi Weeks had reached out and said you know we should probably do something and we actually talked about doing a um, horn aging video actually and we this is something a goal of the society is to get something like that moving forward but we thought this year uh, missing the show this would be a good refresher for guys uh, we've got lots of new members that are new sheep hunters and uh you know that your your courses are always invaluable when it comes to horn aging so we thought this would be a great opportunity to sit down with you and go through the horn aging stuff but uh before we jump into that bill i thought um wild sheep society and through the jurassic classic and uh, uh abbotsford as well um abbotsford broad and gun club has supported us uh in the uh, uh region six capture stone sheep uh, health herd assessment i know you're the lead on that so I just thought maybe before we jump into the horn aging stuff, if you just give us a bit update. I think we're in year three of that project and uh, just where we're at and talk a little bit about uh, what's going on with the Cascade Stone Sheep. Sure, I'll give you a summary. I'll, I'll maybe, pull up a, uh, maybe pull up a poster or two as well at the same time. So like you said, we are in year three um, of that project. The current timeline is to have uh, uh, is to have Grace there. Can you see that now? I'll zoom that looks in. Good, on. Bill. Um, one of the main focuses of the project was to look at um, ewe 
natal range selection and habitat use. So we deployed callers and, and if you've been reading the updates, if your membership's been reading those updates, you'll understand how we deployed that and how we identified lambing range. Um, initial summary has come back and, and you know the graphic here that you'll be seeing on the screen uh, kind of runs down through that. We had the good fortune from one winter to the next um, of having different snow conditions. So snow on the ground lasted quite a bit longer in the one year than the other. And if you look at the middle bottom of your screen there, when we look at lambing periods, um, that seems to be reflected, a response seems to be reflected there with respect to winter severity. And on a little bit more to the right, when you look at the use of the types of different landscape attributes, we found that ewes were selecting different areas as well. So Grace Enns is the master's student at the University of Alberta who's doing a lot of the heavy lifting on this and the statistical analysis. Um, she, while well, we are hoping that she's going to have her um, master's thesis completed in December of this year, uh, and then she'll be able to move to defense of that. Um, uh, the other part of that project is the health assessment. So Dr. Kali Thacker um, was leading this. It's a master's uh, of veterinary medicine. So she's already a veterinarian, but now she's moving on to her master's in veterinary sciences. And she's helping us develop a baseline of uh, health and fitness condition in thin horned sheep. She's also done some work as part of this study in Alaska as well. So it's going to be quite a comprehensive analysis of what do our thin horned sheep carry naturally? Um, how might that be affecting, uh, you know, their productivity and their health and their fitness? And, uh, so looking forward to that. And her timeline is somewhat similar. She's probably next spring when she's looking at wrapping a bunch of this stuff up. So that in a nutshell is the, the Cassiar project and, and where we've got to with, with those two. We're kind of pretty excited that we found a bunch of new information, new science that uh, people had not um, known about before. We were able to test field gear that had never been used before in British Columbia. So we've got some uh, lessons learned from that that we've helped um, provide that to other projects that are using similar technologies now. So it, it's been a really good project. Awesome. Bill, Bill, is there anything that stands out um, from, you know, you said there's some new findings and stuff, and I know obviously there has to be a final report and that sort of stuff, but is there anything that stands out in your mind uh, from that report or from the study so far, the assessment that um, you find particularly interesting that you can share with us, or do we have to wait for the final report on that? Uh, a couple interesting things that's, that caught me by surprise. <clears throat> so. We had also done some work, part of Kylie's project uh, was studying a, another herd of uh, stone sheep. And when we compare the fitness, the body condition of those, the Cassiar animals to this other group, there was a significant difference in average body condition. So um, anybody who's involved with the agricultural world will understand body condition scoring that they use uh, for domestic stock. We use that same sort of scoring along with a, a bunch of other uh, wildlife specific things, but in a general sense that that body condition scoring, it's a ranking out of five 
CASIAR used generally were about a three and a half on average out of five for fitness and body condition scoring. Um, the other group, uh, which is east of Dease Lake, uh, was about, averaged about a four and a half. So quite a significant difference in body condition. Uh, both captures happened in February of the year, so similar timing. And the populations weren't that far apart geographically, only you know a few hundred kilometers. So um, they experienced similar growing conditions, they experienced similar winter weather patterns. Uh, it really boils down to probably what the habitat that they occupy can offer them. So that's, that's been an interesting sort of um, initial observation and, and we'll flesh that, Kalia will flesh that sort of stuff out a little bit more in her, in her work. With Grace, um, and looking at the, the U-LAM relationship, very tight windows of habitat selection for natal range. So lambing sites have a very specific suite of attributes with respect to slope and aspect. Um, ruggedness and depending on the snow depth in that winter it seems that those parameters or the range of parameters that make for good lambing habitat get narrower. We kind of would expect that but we didn't have any science that absolutely showed that before. The other thing was we learned that stone sheep ewes do not have uh, in the Cassiar herd for sure, do not have lambs every year. Uh, in fact, it seems like the ewes in that population, perhaps related to the, the lower body condition scoring, take a little bit longer to get to that first age of lambing. Um, that's interesting because now we can compare that population to other populations when we sample them. And Wild Sheep Society is supporting the project in the Peace Williston area right now. Um, and, and that's, we're, we're gonna gather similar information from that and it'll be really um, informative when we start doing those sorts of comparisons on habitat use and, and lambing behavior and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, those are kind of the two, to me, those are the two big things that stuck out. Uh, and so, you know, in terms of impact to a population that's small and isolated, uh, any sort of additive ewe loss could be significant over the long term, very similar to mountain goats, really. Well, fantastic, Bill. I'm looking forward to the, those final reports. And uh, so is this kind of our first baseline assessment then for those, for northern uh, stone sheep, or do, do we have similar projects in the in the past where we've done this? Um, obviously, for the Cassiar sheep, that's this is probably the first assessment we've done, I guess, eh? Yeah, we haven't. We've done other work before in the Northeast looking at stone sheep populations where we've used collar data. Um, the difference here is that we're using one and two hour fixed rate collars. So we know from hour to hour on half of our collars where those ewes are standing. Uh, the other half we know every two hours where those ewes are standing. In comparison to the past work that's been done, where the collar technology was not as advanced and battery um, life lifespan was not as good, uh, satellite upload opportunities were not as good, uh, they were using six or 12 hour fix rates. And what we see just with our one and two hour fix rates is those ewes can move significant distances in just that short time frame, 
And there might be an, a second round of analysis where we dumb down our data to reflect other work that's been done in the past using those six and 12 hour fixed rates. And then C, is the habitat selection inferences different? Because you can appreciate if that U is moving a few kilometers in just an hour, if you're not picking and then staying in a location for two or three hours and then moving another two kilometers the next hour, if you're using a six hour fix rate, you only have the first point and the second point and you don't understand how she used the habitat in between there. And yet she's traveled a long ways. So that would be another um, sort of the next round of analysis on the data when Grace wraps this up. Fantastic, Bill. Yeah, well, I could talk to you all day about this stuff. It's so <laughs> interesting. So uh, we'll probably save that for another podcast. So we appreciate all your work on it. And uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting to be um, supporting this project. And we're really thankful for looking forward to the data on this as well. So thank you for all you're doing there. Yeah, I, you uh, know, it's, a, it's, a, it's supported by so many groups, right? Wild Sheep Society was there right at the start. Um, and, you know, it's often hard to be the first one into the pool, but um, it's important that, you know, you have that first group that's willing to jump into the pool to test the water. And, and without the society and, and some of the guide outfitter associations that have really supported the work we've done, uh, we probably would not have the, the science we have today. So thanks to the society and your membership for you know, always being willing to try and look at something new from a different angle. Well, that's great, Bill. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so let's uh, let's kick off with some intros here. People are probably wondering who we are. Uh, my name is Kyle Stelter. I'm the past president of the Wild Sheep Society BC, and um, I'm uh, the chair of our communications committee. Um, we, we sat down as a committee uh, early this year and decided that we wanted a bit more interaction with our membership and uh, we thought we'd run this podcast. So uh, I'm your host today. Our co-host is uh, Steve Hamilton. Steve, we'll let you do the uh, next self-introduction there. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a name that generally everybody knows, uh, good things and bad things. Um, <laughs> I'm a life member of the Wild Sheep Society, uh, vice chair of the communications committee. And yeah, as Kyle said, uh, we needed to start reaching out to the membership to to get more of a, a, a face behind the names, behind the posts, and bringing somebody like Bill on here for our first uh, Zoomcast slash podcast it is great. Uh, Bill does so much for us. We work so closely with him, so we're just we're just super excited to hear what he has to say. And bonus for those that are watching instead of just listening is we're going to get to see some of the stuff that Bill has brought with us today. So I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. Bill, over to you. Let's, uh, if you could give us a bit of a self-introduction. Uh, you got some pretty long handles there, so I'll let you to dive into that so I don't mess up the names. <laughs> yeah, really, eh? The, um, right now, I am the Provincial Wild Sheep and Mountain Goat Specialist um, for the province of BC. We, we've not had this position before, so um, it's brand new. We spent the first, uh, I'm, I guess, almost a year into that position now. And we've been tackling a lot of stuff that had kind of not ever been looked at before. So I'm, I'm trying to coordinate different research products and outcomes, uh, supporting regions with um, background information on the regulations, uh, really trying to build relationships with um, conservation partners like 
the society and the foundation and some of the guide outfitter associations as well, Jurassic Classic. So, um, you know, linkages with Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, um, citizen science inputs, as much as we can do, I, I really think that one of the big wins, if I'm able to, to achieve it, will be to kind of pull this group together and get everybody working on the same page. And um, so, yeah, that's been a lot of what I've been doing the last little while, looking at some different regulation changes or um, considerations, um, helping Conservation Officer Service out with different directives, managing some of the issues that come up around sheep health, um, mountain goat health, working with Dr. Helen Swancha and our wildlife health group. So um, yeah, it's, it's uh, every day is a new adventure, but um, we seem to be getting some wins and, and we seem to be getting some tasks done. Well, that's great, Bill. Um, and I, I wanna commend you. One thing that I've personally found that you've done a really good job of is uh, communicating really. And, um, you know, lots of times there's not enough communication around the lot. Things are happening in government, but we're not seeing it because it's not getting shared. And, uh, you know, you've been on Beyond the Kill on their podcast um, talking about the new Citizen Science app. And um, you've been really good at communicating. You're always at our show. I know you're down at the Wild Sheep Foundation. So you're kind of the face of Wild Sheep in BC, certainly on the government side. And you've done a fantastic job. So. Uh, kudos to you on that and on the communication aspect of it, even being here today with us, taking time on your busy schedule. So really thankful for that. And uh, and then also just, uh, you know, uh, I don't make it a habit of um, commending the government, but I, I will in this case, uh, <laughs> in the sense that they found the resources to, to make the, this, this position, um, a specialist in BC for wild sheep and goats, a priority so um we've got yeah, the definitely. funding for that and uh, so hats off to the ministry for that and um so yeah this is a new position but you're not new to wild sheep in bc so can you talk a little bit about your background i guess and that not you don't have to go into a bunch of detail but um although the position's new you're not new to wild sheep at all yeah no i've i've you know been fortunate enough to have been you know i came to british columbia in 96 I did a lot of work with mountain goats on the south coast um, and, and moved north, was able to, you know, dive into a thin horn sheep and, and uh, really sort of get a lot of it, bucket list things done, right? Like um, different species drive people in different ways and I'm fascinated by mountain ungulates. So it, it, I'm really fortunate to be able to be here um, been able to represent the province for the last half dozen years on the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Wild Sheep Group. Um, that's an international jurisdictional, basically any jurisdiction in North America that has wild mountain sheep is part of that. Um, so being able to operate and, and function and uh, interact at that sort of higher level has been really rewarding as well. Fantastic. Well, that's great. Um, so, well, let's kick things off here with the horn aging stuff. So, uh, just a little bit of background. I've had the opportunity to be on a few sheep hunts. I've been sheep hunting for maybe 10 years. Uh, certainly not an expert by any means. And I certainly learned tons uh, whenever I've done a horn aging seminar uh, with you, Bill. And um, Steve is 
new to sheep hunting. So um, we thought the two of us on here would be an opportunity. You know, I've been on the hunt before, so I'll probably have some topical stuff that I may have question wise. And then Steve will probably have some new questions um, for the new sheep hunter. So we'll, we'll try and bring that aspect to it. And, um, and we'll just kind of go through. So maybe Bill, if you could start off just talking about you know, if we look at the regs, um, I, I, you know, when I started sheep hunting, it's intimidating. You open up that man, the, the <laughs> regs, and, you know, there's, you know, mature, and there's uh, full curl, and there's thin horn, and there's big horn, and there's noses, and there's horns, and it's just, it's, it's a little overwhelming, to be honest with you. So, I guess maybe if you could uh, dumb it down for us on, you know, on sheep aging in general, and, and maybe talk a little bit about thin horns and big horns in BC. And uh, and how that the regs kind of work around that. Sure, the um, I can completely appreciate uh, what you say with respect to it, the regulations seeming a little overwhelming. Um, you know, regulations have evolved. Uh, back in the early 1900s, there was no bag limit on sheep, and there was no horn curl restriction. Um, because of different pressures that have happened and as we've learned that different types of harvest levels can affect, can affect the way that sheep populations function and can affect their fecundity or their productivity, um, those regulations have evolved. And it's important for people to understand that the sheep populations that we have today, whether it's bighorns or thinhorns, are a product of the way that we've managed them. Um, when we look wild sheep and mountain goats as well, those um, more alpine-oriented mountain ungulates really have a highly developed social structure, the way that they interact with each other. And that is what keeps their populations um, ticking, for lack of a better description. When you start uh, changing different aspects of that social structure through harvest, um, and, and if harvest pressure is too high, it can have a, a more dramatic effect, then the, the population responds in different ways. So we're fortunate with thin horned sheep in that our harvest level has been really low, uh, relatively speaking. So we have a 3% maximum harvest rate is what we, we want to stay underneath for thin horned sheep. We, um, uh, as you know, a lot of the areas for thin horns are general open season, and they look at horn curl or age uh, assessed by annuli. And we're fortunate to be able to see that those intact populations, how they function, how that social status within the male group um, results in changes in the population fitness and outcomes. So Alaska was. Uh, they've had the good fortune of having uh, some research that they've been able to complete with different staff and budgets and programs. And they've been able to show a gentleman by the name of Wayne Heimer. Uh, he's, he's long retired now, but he did some research that was able to show how the evolution of horn curls in thin horned sheep or doll sheep in Alaska affected um, lambing rate and population levels. And he landed in around uh, seven eighths curl. So if you have your mature population, your, your male group is, is mostly mature uh, within your rut group, and they've got a seven eighths curl or more, then you don't 
have a negative effect on lambing and pregnancy rates. But when your harvest pressure is too high, or you change those horn curl restrictions in thin horns become more reduced, then you can actually have a population effect um, on harvest. So we kind of use, if we use that example and we, and we compare it to bighorn sheep and you look at the really wide array of bighorn sheep regulations, and especially if you, if you look south of the border in the US, some of the very um, different jurisdictional uh, parameters around horn curl. Um, and then you look at some of the areas where there is no harvest and you study the way that those rams where there's no harvest or very limited harvest uh, behave within that rut form or during that rut period and the outcomes of those populations and you compare that to areas where harvest pressure is managed you know at a higher level or horn curls are managed at a higher level and you see changes. So our objective in BC is to try to manage at a level that provides for opportunity for people to go out. I mean, we're fortunate. We still have a lot of opportunity that's over the counter, buy your tag and go. But in the back of our mind, we're always watching those population responses as a result of hunter pressure. And as you noted in your intro, there's a lot of new hunters that are getting into sheep hunting and mountain goat hunting. Um, and so we're seeing that the license sales are significantly higher than they've been in the past. Um, that trend is pretty stable and increasing. And it's important that us as government uh, watch the response to that. Um, you know, and, and that's why we track things. That's why we have compulsory inspection for all our sheep. That's why we... Uh, ask hunters to tell us with, you know, it's a one kilometer by one kilometer grid, so it's not putting too fine scale of an X on a map, but asking hunters to tell us where they've harvested that animal. I mean, that becomes important in so many ways because it allows the biologist then to make inferences about the population, but it also allows the biologist, if there's a resource development um, or some sort of large scale activity that's going to happen in an area to say hold it you know we need to consider that there's this level of harvest in this area and and you know the rumors go around about people fabricating their harvest locations and and they just pick a spot on a map um you know the unfortunate part to that is that then we don't have information that we can use to protect habitats or to ensure mitigations are put in when developments happen um, but with the genetics work that we did with thinhorn sheep, um, we know those specific individuals that do not exist where those harvest locations were provided, and that's ongoing. So, um, you know, things will develop eventually where, where we're able to uh, tell specific hunters that the information they provided us is not correct, and we know that. So, um, because genetics don't lie. Right. So, I really encourage. Um, hunters as the very first step when you if you're successful try to be as honest and forthcoming with information as you can because it's not just around managing that harvest site it's all the other aspects of that from the sociobiology of of those sheep populations down to the harvest the habitat that they use 
Right. It's it's so it's for the betterment of the, the herd itself. It's not like you hear people saying, well, they're just wanting to know where I took that so they can go hunt that area themselves. It's it's not about that. It's more about the, as you say, the betterment of the, the herd itself, right? Exactly. And when we you know, we've tested that there's over the years there's been some challenges to how secure our data is. Um, our data is pretty bulletproof when it comes to compulsory inspection information. So um, you know, you always have the stories and the rumors that happen. Mm -hmm. Well, I told so-and-so here, and then next year, a yeah. friend of theirs was in an area and, and hunting. You know, with social media and web platforms and chat forums and, and websites and hunter forums, um, the fact that people are out on the landscape now in so many different activity uses, mm -hmm. if somebody takes a picture where they've successfully harvested a ram and there's a mountain in the background, I can guarantee you yep. people will know what that mountain is and it's got nothing to do with the security of the compulsory inspection location information. It's got everything to do with that mountain in the background that somebody knows exactly which mountain that is. Yeah, seen that firsthand where uh, there, there was a guy that got nailed for it. Somebody recognized the mountain, right? But that's a whole other conversation. So. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. that. That certainly explains why compulsory inspection and that little data marker is so important. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, horn curls evolve to um, address a need locally. So okay. you'll see some of our areas are NRAM LEHs. And the reason for that is because the, the region is concerned about targeting too much harvest on that older just on that older group of rams and they want to rebuild the older group of ram proportion within the herd so we've implemented some any ram lehs and preliminary information suggests that that's worked that it's resulted in a older age in um, the population because to some people a young ram is a great ram to take and that's awesome it's completely up to that as long as it's legal i fully support you know exercising your opportunity um and and so that's what you'll see then we have three quarter curls and and full curls and mature ram uh in bighorn as well and again those nuances around curl and were brought in because the biologist locally is trying to manage that that fine balance between providing as much hunter opportunity as they can while still ensuring that the population is going to be healthy. And um, that's why we see those tweaks and changes happen from time to time. So, so you, as a new sheep hunter, you threw in some, some terms that I've heard before, like full curl, three quarter curl, mature. What's the difference and what should I be looking for? Like what, what's the significance? So effectively, it's it's you have to um, consider a clock when you when you look at the horn curl, um, three quarter curl. In our in our hunting and trapping synopsis, there's some graphics that mm -hmm. are built to try and help people understand. Yeah. Um, what we have to appreciate though is the angle that you're looking at that animal at. Okay. And. Um, I can grab, we'll see how this works. I'm going to get a little <laughs> bit more. Um, a horn headset. Sorry about that. It's probably not 
Let me see how I can do here. Okay. As I get motion sick, look away. So yeah, there you go. So you can appreciate that straight from the side, you can get a look at this ram. But if you're down slope, you see where that horn tip ends up now? Oh yeah, it looks like it's over the bridge. Yeah. Or up slope, right? So a lot of what we need to ensure is that when we're spotting animals, sorry about that, I'll come back here now. When we're in the field and we're glassing those animals, um, try to make sure that you're watching that animal for a while so you can see the head at different configurations. Be aware of your contour in, a, in uh, proximity to the, to the animal's contour. Mm. Because again, looking upslope or looking downslope will change how that horn tip looks and how it aligns. All our regulations are set up that um, it's, it's assessed when viewed squarely from the side. So you want to be the same height on the mountain as the sheep is. You want to be perpendicular to the sheep so that you can see and assess that line. So that's, those are important considerations for new hunters to think about. Hmm. Um, how high on the hill you are makes a difference. Oh, totally. Yeah. That, that you see the pictures and in, in the regulations and it's just, it's, it's, it's so much easier when somebody like yourself puts an actual set in front of you and says, notice the difference. It's much more in perspective. Thanks. Yeah, no worries. The, um, sorry about that. The, uh, um, like I said, spend as much time as you can watching that animal. Hmm. Um, and in terms of optics, you know, not all of us, um, have the luxury of, of being able to buy really expensive optics. But that's the thing that you have to understand as, as the hunter. Get as good a set of optics as you can afford and then work within the limitations of those optics. So it's the same consideration as your rifle or your bow. Um, if you know you're a good shot out to 100 yards, you're not going to take a 300-yard shot. So if you know that your optics are limited um, to a certain range of effectiveness, and get inside that range of effectiveness. Don't, don't ask those optics to perform outside of what they were built or manufactured to perform for. So my recommendation, get the best equipment you can afford, but manage how you use your equipment within the range that that equipment was built to perform in. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, Inhorn and Bighorn, is there any difference to how, how those are aged? Not so much. I mean, horn growth patterns between those two are very similar. Um, let me, again, I would remind you that, that they're a product of um, how we manage those herds. So you'll see on the table here, I've got a series of, of thin horns in the back. This is a big horn in the front. Um, okay. There's some breakage here on the on the front side, the leading edge of this horn. Uh, this you'll hear terms like brooming yes. and breakage. So if you can appreciate that um, brooming is a battering of this tip from combat or from them uh, rubbing against rocks or trees that sort of stuff so there's some erosion but there's also that 
that percussion that happens. And from a fine scale, I don't know if you can see this well, yep. um, it's a crushing of the fibers within the horn. Breakage is different. It's where it sheathes off. It's a result of a crack or a fall. Um, and, and so that's, it's a different type of look to it. At the end of the day, though, it's where the horn tip lies that's important. Whether or not it's groomed or not only matters when you get to aging. And for bighorn sheep in BC, we don't have an issue with aging because we manage them on curl. Um, just while we're on the topic of aging in bighorns, and because I have this one here, uh, we can look through this one and, I, and I'll guide you through how we would age this bighorn. So it, what we wanna do is uh, identify the lamb tip. Now the lamb tip is not always easy to see. And the lamb tip is grown between about 10 weeks after that uh, ram is born, it starts. And it grows contiguously, continuously through the first year but you can appreciate that in winter, everything slows down. And so you do end up with a bit of a slowdown in growth. Hmm. Then when they reach their first birthday, often what we'll see is the development of what we call a one-year bulge. So that if we, um, uh, in the horn sheath, that will be really difficult to see from distance. You probably can't see it here. Here's your lamb tip right up in this area. Here's your one-year bulge, and if I turn this this way, you can see it maybe here. Right, more just slightly, yeah. Right, see how it bulges out and smooths, just really smooths out here? Yeah. And so that's the one-year birthday. Doesn't have any relation to aging this animal, but it's a reference point. So we know that then this annulus is two. Okay. So this is the second annulus. Now, if we didn't have this one-year bulge here, if we weren't able to feel, you certainly can't see it. I mean, subtly, now that you know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. But in the field, this is going to be really hard to see. So don't spend too much time beating yourself up about looking for a one-year bulge. But understand that when we're aging the animal, this becomes important because we know that the next annulus is the second. So we have our lamb tip. Oftentimes that can be seen on big horns as a, basically a stacking up of some of these groups. This ram is nursing through his first year and his first winter. So horn growth doesn't completely stop. It's his uh, fitness and his nutrition is, is assisted by mum. The second annulus is here, third annulus. Now, what you'll see on some of the online aging is people will say the first dark annulus you see is the fourth one. So I've just shown you here where hmm. it's not. Yeah. So be careful about that. Um, be careful about trying to aud use a sort of um, general helpful rules to make specific decisions for you. You need to weigh everything out as you, as you evaluate a ram. So we know that this is the third, not the fourth, but it's certainly the first dark colored 
annulus that we see. Mm -hmm. Now here is an interesting sort of situation in this ram's horns. He's got a, you know, as, as we look at growth, it tends to be symmetrically reduced or proportionally reduced, reduced growth from one annulus to the next to the next. And we look at it from the side, oftentimes you can see a bit of a straight line or an angle will change. Maybe I can adjust this and you can see, you see this angle change in this horn? If you were to draw a straight line from this annulus to that one, and then from this one to the next one, right. you can see how that changes. Think of a pentagon or an octagon, right? Where you reach those corners and then your growth angle changes. So, you know, this here looks very much pronounced, looks very much like an annulus, and it could be the result of an injury, right? There's just the one year would be injured, so that would be the one that's affected, his growth is affected. There's some indication here that we're seeing that angle change, right? If we think right, of that okay. going again, yeah, right? Comes to here, and then now we see a bit of an angle change. So I think this is an annulus. I think he's had some injury happen that he's been able to overcome. So two, three, four, and now he's returned back to full growth again, right? He's, gotcha. he's healed up from that injury that happened here. Right. Now he's back into regular growth again. Huh. And then we start to see that reduced horn growth happen again. So we got the one, two, three, four, five, six, nice seven-year-old bighorn sheep ram. For a thin horn sheep, we grab one of these. What we see is that lamb tip tends to be more pronounced. And if I turn it this way. Oh, definitely, yeah. You can see it much more so than the, than the bighorn. The one-year bulge, again, it can be more pronounced. But you'll, you'll note that when it, I'm just trying to get the right camera angle here. There we go. You'll note that it still has the one-year bulge in the center, but from the outside, you're not really seeing anything, right? You see this up close. You can see this, I'll try to, you see this lump in the horn here? Yeah. So that's the one-year bulge. This is two, three, four, five, six, seven years old on this ram. And Thin horns can be a little bit easier to see sometimes. Again, think of that octagon where you come, you have a change in growth angle, and then come to the next point on that octagon and you have another change in growth angle. So yes, it's a sweeping curve, but on a fine scale at the back side, that can help you age as well. The other thing we look at with this guy, which is really handy, is that the formation of the annulus, you'll see this little kicker here. Okay, see, yeah. Almost the next groove here. Well, that's mm. a pattern that he's developing, right? So his next one would, we could assume it would be the same sort of pattern of growth. So Bill, um, on that ram there, um, quite often I hear hunters say, oh, well, there's there's another age and it's just, you can't see it because of his hair or whatever. Under the hair. So not, yeah. 
that that ram there you you didn't there was one right close to the base of the head um which you know the the, the very you know more than likely you would have seen that one if the sheep maybe in the winter time you wouldn't but certainly early season you'd see that uh, annuli uh, but the one there's one closer to the base of the the horn or the head there it, you wouldn't have uh so that's not an annuli not not the one that, that the last one you've seen but there's one that looks like it's forming there so that yeah, you're not right you're saying that that one so guys are probably if they thought there's one in the hair there they're probably misaging that ram based on that would you agree with that yeah yeah and you know if we go back to this growth pattern where we look at this little shadow bulge that's happening right this is yeah, the yeah. lead up to that shadow bulge so gotcha. we have our big lip and then the annulus and shadow bulge right so this is our, what's forming here is that big lip and so you see you have these two grooves well that's actually just the first groove that's starting to form he's going to continue to grow in so this is not an annulus this is okay. part of a normal growth pattern for this ram that he's built through his life Right. Even in his early years, if you look here, there's that shadow mm -hmm. little bulge here as well. So every ram is different. Not every ram has this sort of feature, but some do. And when they do have it, it's very helpful. Um, if we take a look at a set of very old thin horn sheep horns. Let me try and get the right angle here for you. You know, this this ram was found dead. Um, you can see the annuli, they stand out quite well, even though the horn sheath itself is starting to sort of decay and, and fracture. And you can see here, this on this ram, that's the 12th annulus. Wow. So you see how small they start to get when they get really old. Right. But you know what, if that's 12, you don't have to worry about it because you're only worried about eight, right? Eight. <laughs> wow. So, so and, and again, it, you can see that octagon sort of pentagon pattern develop in the inside of the horn um, from the front side and rear side. Again, those annuli are clear and crisp. So even though this is an old ram, he's very easy to tell his age. A younger ram, and, and we'll talk about false annuli maybe now, you can appreciate Perfect. that if you were seeing this ram from a distance, just get the lighting right. You're seeing this ram from a distance and you're gonna try to age it, <laughs> this, might, this might cause you some grief, right? You're trying to understand, well, is this an annulus or not? Right. From the side, wow, it's got all the features, right? It's got a groove here. Um, but from the front, it has no groove. It's a ripple, just like all these other ones. Right. So, you know, in this particular case, the hunter got a little artsy craftsy and tried to gouge it with their oh. leatherman. Um, <laughs> wow. But that didn't work. Um, it, but it makes a great teaching tool. But again, going back, remember we talked about each annulus having a distinct pattern? Right. And you can see that shadow lip here. Yeah. You can see that shadow lip there. Gotcha. And there's nothing in nothing here. Nothing there. Huh. So you're not going to see this with, um, you know, $59 binoculars. But 
with a $2,500 spotting scope, maybe you do, right? If you're at the right spot. So again, if, you, if you're going to try to inform your, your harvest based on age, be aware of these sorts of features that can be pretty convincing um, from a long ways away, but when you get up close, uh, they're just not there, they're false annuli. Wow. So Bill, do you mind with that horn there, do you mind just going through and just pointing out each annuli um, just so we clearly can see? Because even there's a few other ones in there that are a little confusing to me. So can you just uh, go through and say, show us each year wh where you see an annuli for? Yeah, so this one here, um, you know, unfortunately I've cut it off because it's, um, because the main part that I wanted people to be able to see was just this, this false in here. Um, let me pull another headset. Sheepheads everywhere, Bill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a matter of wanting to make sure I had the right thing for you to see. So, you know, we look at this Rams headset. Um, you know, here we are kind of from a front angle and then as we move around more to the side uh, and we look at how the annuli are formed on this ram and you start looking at these sorts of features in between here, right? And you start wondering whether or not these are annuli. They're dark, right? They've been stained. Um, they give the appearance of maybe it being an annulus, but there's no groove at all. It's just a mm. series of compressed ripples. What we see with rams when they migrate because they move around to different rut ranges and different um, areas, they, they interact with different groups, is that sometimes these movements can be significant enough that it affects the amount of available energy they have to put into horn growth. And so we get these little features that develop in horns that become what we call false annuli. Um, and, and you just want to make sure that if you're just looking for dark, if you're just looking for dark patterns on a horn, something like this might cause you some grief. So, but from an aging perspective, because of the regularity of this, it can be really informative. Mm -hmm. So we start here, you know, you run down to your lamb tip. Um, this one's got really good growth for his early year. Lamb tips there. The one-year bulge, I don't know if that shows up, but you can kind of see it there at my thumb. A little bit. Um, and then here's two and three oh, Bill, four. Quick, quick question for you while we're there. So if I'm looking at that ramp, can I, when I see that first line, that first annuli, can I always assume that's a second year, uh, that's its second year? Do I always assume that or... Are there cases where there maybe is an annuli even though there's no bulge um, or even though there's a bulge as well so um, is it safe to always say that's year two when i'm looking at a ramp no no i wouldn't what we see sometimes our lamb tips will form like this okay um so if you're counting this as two and it's actually one then you could be taking a seven-year-old as opposed to an eight-year-old, right? So there's some caution there because we do see, I don't have one of those here with me today, but 
Um, we do see those lamb tips form that look pretty crisp like this does. Um, so always, always be cautious. Um, you know, aging in the field is a tricky thing. And I don't know that um, if the ram is not full curl and you're at eight, I, I, you shouldn't feel bad about walking away from rams like that. I know I have. And, uh, and it's just not, it's not worth the risk, right? It's not worth the uh, No, definitely not. Issues. So as we walk through this horn curl, again, we see these ripples that might from distance be mistaken as annuli that we know now are false because there is no groove. They're just a series of ripples. Um, we see this appear in the middle here, and, and this is a really strong indication. So uh, it has a bit of a groove to it. But when we think of that octagon pentagon um, pattern, and we move from one annulus straight line, there's a change in growth or horn curl angle to here. You see how flat this is across mm -hmm. this section? Yeah. He's probably injured enough to cause an issue with his growth, but not. this doesn't reflect a year of growth. We would see that horn curl change, that angle would change here, and it's not, this is as, as flat as it comes. Um, in terms, maybe I can try to slide that out a bit more. So you can clearly see that angle of horn curl change there and change here, but nothing in between. So from a regular growth pattern, it would make sense that this is a false annulus as well, right? Horn growth proportionally decreases. Yeah as they get older. So if we look at here, there's nice symmetry between these annuli. Um, this one is the outlier. This one's the, the regular one. So mm. when you're in the field, if you see a situation like this, be really careful of something like this because it can misinform you at distance. Um, and, and then, yeah, if you're counting this as your eighth annulus and it's not. Yeah. Eight, um, because it's a, a false, that's where you run into to issues. So horns look for uniformity and growth, look for uniform reductions in patterns, look for these little indicators, right? So here's that ripple, here's that ripple. Well, geez, you know, that's right about where that ripple sits. Gotcha. There's that ripple again. You can see it's, it still looks a bit more like a groove, although it's not as pronounced as this yeah. in the same spot. So this ram has a lot of, of things that can tell you more about it um, than just looking, oh, this is a groove, so it's got to be one. We wow. move around to the front, you know, you start to see these false annuli and they, they're just smooth. There's, there's no groove. Nothing there. Between. So you want, like I said, you want to be able to view that animal for a, for, for a period of time. You want to see it at different horn angles. You want to see different lighting. Um, and you want to make sure your optics are not going to let you down. Do you mind aging that one for us, Bill? Just go through, because there are a few faults in there. Just go through and age the agent for us and what you're looking at. Sure. So um, this is the first one. I'll put it from the front. You can kind of see it. It's a little bit more pronounced here. There's nothing inside this, this horn sheath at the top here right it's it's grown so this is number one again we identified our one-year bulge which is right here 
Um, if you were here, you'd feel it for sure. So we know that that's his birth, first birthday. Here's, here's number two then. Number three and four and five. And then here is that false that's going to cause us some grief. Mm -hmm. It's not an injury. This does not a typical injury pattern um, while we're talking about it. Uh, recall that big horn that we looked at that had that just the one year with short growth and then the next year had a sort of a disproportionately longer growth. That's more typical of an injury. Um, they, the reality is where these animals live, if they're injured and they can't clear that injury in a year, they're going to die. They'll get eaten or, or they're going to be, their fitness will be reduced where they can't um, recover from it. So when you see two short sections of horn, um, just don't automatically assume that those are two years of growth. It's much more likely um, that that is a false annulus. And you see how even these guys are, right? And here's that false again, and how even those are. And here's that false again, and how even those are. So back to our aging, one, two, three, four, five, injury, six, seven, eight, nine. This is a 10-year-old ram here. Wow. So he's a shooter then. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you when you go back to that, um, you know, we'll look at the front again and remember those little cues we were talking about. See the little, little lip there, right? Those become really key. Growth um, proportional. Exactly. Um, but this could be one of those, Kyle, you had mentioned earlier about an annulus being lost in the hair. Definitely. Yeah. But again, he's 10 years old, so the horn growth is slowed down so much that, yep, that might be lost in the hair, but you're still going to see quite a bit more horn for that ram, right? Oh. So, Bill, that ram, he, I'm not really seeing him from the side from the angle of the camera, but uh, he, he isn't past his nose, is he? Or is he, does he no. come down? And, no. He's, so that's... No. So he's clearly a legal stone sheep, um, but he doesn't meet the past the nose. And, and it does talk about in the regulations about not shooting a ram. Um, you, you shouldn't shoot him on age or, you, you know, certainly if you're not confident that he's a mature ram. So I guess that, I guess we could talk a little bit about that for just a, a new hunter going into the field. Um, in a case like this, this is a legal ram that is okay to harvest, but he doesn't actually bridge the, uh, his nose in this case. Yeah, exactly. Our current regulations talk about um, full curl, which means that horn tip, you know, let's change it. You're looking up at that ram from uh, down the hill. So now he looks full curl. Um, but when you look at him from, try and set this back up again, from squarely from the side, you know, he's not, he's not full curl. Um, in which case, uh, he would be legal to harvest if he had eight annuli was was um, the regulations speak more to um, has attained the age of eight years old is evidenced by the presence of eight annuli right so um, like you said he's he's old enough um, but hunters should not should not be ashamed or upset about walking away even from a ram like this because like we said this one's 
probably inside the hair because his growth is so short. And if you miss one of these others, then you know you're you're really pushing that sort of eight annuli threshold. And he is so short, so immediately he gives you the appearance that um, this is not a ram I'm going to chase too far. Um, yeah, I think things, the other things that might be informative might be you know the swaying back if he's got a bit of a dip the the squareness of his body right because an older ram is going to be a you know all men suffer from that right we we get a little bit square as we get older um and he's probably going to display some of that more mature physical appearance in his body shape and you know his back sway his belly's going to stick out a bit more um, the way that he interacts with other rams on the hillside is going to be a, an indicator as well for somebody looking at, at whether or not this ram might be a legal ram. Wow. Um, is there any other characteristics? Bill, I've heard about a Roman nose and that sort of stuff. Um, is that something that you think of when you're out in the field or um, a characteristic you're looking at? Obviously not aging them, but... Right, and you know, for bighorns, it's much more pronounced. Um, some of the photography supporters for Wild Sheep Society, like Darren Epp and and um, uh, the you know Jeff Jackson and um, uh, oh shoot, um, oh I'm forgetting his name now. Dennis Keto. Keto, yes, he has a beautiful picture um, of this big Roman nose ram. Uh, much more common in bighorns than it is in thinhorns, just because, uh, you know, they're younger sort of uh, grouping of rams and they're a little bit more full of testosterone. You could almost think of it like whitetail versus mule deer. Whitetail tend to be a more aggressive subspecies of deer than mule deer are. Um, and, and, you know, bighorns maybe reflect a little bit more of that aggression than than thin horns do. So that's why we don't see brooming in thin horns. Um, we see erosive wear. They will wear down their lamb tip a little bit, but you'll see the odd breakage that will happen because of accidental fall, but no brooming. Not like not like a big horn population is more prone to. So um, the Roman nose generally gets formed when they're when they're slamming heads together and their noses come into contact with the horn or the bridge of the nose with, from the other ram and, and they break a nose, they develop scar tissue. And this will become a, more of an arch on that bony feature, right? You'll get a sc scar tissue will develop here. Hmm. I didn't know that was okay. caused by butting heads. <laughs> cool. Yeah, Dennis had, like I said, he has a beautiful picture there that he had, he shared. Um, just this big, yeah, honking scar tissue on the nose of this one ram. Yeah, it was it was really an awesome picture. So, so Bill, um, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead, Kyle. <laughs> so they talk about uh, a mature ram, and they talk about being eight years old or being past the bridge of the nose. So. You get an example of, a, a, and still I'll refer to stone sheep specifically here. You've got a stone sheep that maybe is only six or seven years old, uh, certainly not eight yet. Um, clearly defined annuli, but he's three or four inches 
uh, above the nose. So um, my understanding is that's a legal ram under a mature ram because it, it is uh, he is beyond uh, the plane of his nose. Um, and if that is indeed the case, is there any conservation concerns? Can uh, can you go out and shoot a six-year-old ram and feel you know no issues there, or is that something a pause for concern? Because I know there is a concern around harvesting mature rams and and stuff like that. So yeah, we um, on the scale that we manage our sheep harvest at right now, the the level of pressure that's happening on them. Um, that's still acceptable. It still won't generate a, a broad uh, impact to, to our, the health of our sheep populations. It is um, more so an issue with uh, thin horns. Although if you look at a couple of the bighorn ram regulations that talk about mature rams, uh, part of the reason that was brought in was to allow those fast horn growing younger animals an opportunity to mature enough to become part of that rut forum gotcha. so it, it it comes back to that more so what we want to do is make sure that we have the genetics in our populations that support those individuals that grow horns really fast and get big and become legal early in life but also support and, and have a role for those rams that are slower growing, um, that you know what, they'll enter the rut form a little bit later because their horns are a little bit smaller. There's been some science published that's pretty credible science uh, that shows that when your harvest pressure is, is too high and you effectively shoot every ram that becomes legal, um, you're going to really reduce the genetic representation of those fast horn growing genes. And in doing that, you can have an effect on the genetic health of your okay. population. So I suggest for thin horns that yes, a ram might be full curl, but if he's six or seven, um, I, I would recommend from a health of the population standpoint that you look for a mature ram, one that's a little bit older. Gotcha. Um, and, and people say, oh, well, that's, that's weird. You're telling me um, shoot old rams, but at the same time, we know how important old rams are to the social structure of those herds. And that's exactly right. The, the qualifier there, though, is that the mature ram segment or the full curl ram segment of a population a thin horn somewhere between eight and 13% of the population. So our harvest rate, what we talk about managing um, the allowable harvest to is 3%. So at the end of the harvest season, you know, the eight gets reduced to five, the 13 gets reduced to 10. There's still a large proportion of those mature rams on the landscape. So everything's sort of contingent on the other factor that supports it. And so harvesting older mature rams will not have the effect that harvesting younger fast growing rams will have because you're pulling it from a larger group um, and you're maintaining a post hunt 
representation in that group that's still at a healthy level for the population. Makes so sense. If that makes sense or not. Yeah, um, it totally does. Yeah. Totally does. Good. So I've, I've climbed up the mountain, don't laugh, uh, used the best optics I can, got an animal that's nine years old, passed the bridge of the nose, I got him down, and I'm coming to your office for a compulsory inspection. What do I need to do? What do I need well, to do? Yeah, so in the hunting and trapping synopsis, page 21, there's a description there, there's a graphic there around what you need to bring. Um, basically, you need to bring the intact portion, upper part of the skull. The horn sheaths need to be naturally attached. Okay. So, you know, the, the, there's some time given for hunters to be able to get in to get a compulsory inspection done. So within 30 days of the day to kill, you have to have your, your CI done. Okay. Uh, it's maybe not in the best interest to leave that CI for 30 days because the horn cheese can become um, destabilized from the skull and can pop off. And at the point where we can't determine whether or not that ram's full curl because we can't reseat those horn sheaths in the natural position with 100% confidence becomes huh. a challenge for the hunter then. Um, and also for government, right? Because the last thing we want to do is to take a ram away from somebody. That's not the intent. Um, but sometimes you have to be the bad guy when, when you can't make those determinations. Um, and then you'll suffer the backlash on social media, right? We've all heard uh, and all seen probably people post pictures and somebody say, well, that's not an old enough ram or that's not full curl. And the debates can, you know, sort of go from there. And and it all boils down to the CI. And then that reduces faith in the compulsory inspection process. So um, get your RAM in as soon as you can. Um, you've got a, a time period to do it. So uh, you can keep them in a freezer. They won't destabilize in the freezer. Uh, horn growth, uh, horn curl doesn't change in the freezer. I've pulled RAMs out. Uh, I, I, I have a suite of horn headsets uh, that I measure from time to time. I've pulled them out. I've measured them as they thaw and um, measured them when they are thawed and, and they're still, you know, right where they need to be, right mm -hmm. where they were when I put them in the freezer. So cool. take those opportunities to maintain your trophy and, and maintain your memories because at the end of the day, if you're going to get that mounted, yeah. even a Euro mount, you're going to want it to be in the best condition you can have it in. Absolutely. Uh, something about a tooth. There, does it matter what tooth I bring in? So the teeth that come in are the the lower incisors. I mean, that's okay, lower. A, okay. a bit of an odd description because they, there is no upper incisor in sheep. They only have lower incisors. And there's a graphic in the hunting and trapping synopsis as well that shows you you generally want the I1 or I2, which are from the center of the lower jaw those two teeth there, one of those, those ones, either center left or center right, can come in. Um, those are the preferred ones. The reason, and you, you need to maintain the root attached to that because that's the part that we use for aging. Oh, okay. So we grind that root down, um, put it into a slide, die, apply a die, which, and if you think of tree rings, yeah, yeah. you know, cementum layer on teeth, 
um, is very similar. They form lines the same as annuli, and you can age that animal. Um, what we found so far is that the annuli counts generally favor the hunter as opposed to the tooth ages. Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, it's because at if you think the first annulus, that ram is only about six months old, between three and six months old. Right. So he's in the tooth cementum layer, he's not developing that cementum layer there. So it, it makes sense in that regard. Yes. It, the teeth just aren't old enough to have to put that ring in there yet. So, huh. yeah. Good to know. Uh, the other thing about, and just while we're on, sorry, oh yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, no worries. If you bring your headset in, um, we are trying to take that opportunity to do nasal swabs. Uh, it's a passive sort of monitoring for mycoplasma over pneumonia. Um, and so what you might see when you bring your headset in, CI contractor might say, hey, can I, or the, the biologist might say, hey, I wanna take a nasal swab of this. They'll insert that swab into the nostril. And what that does, sorry for the jiggling again. What that does, if you see the lower jaw, the, this is the roof of the mouth you're looking at. Okay. And you see the void at the back, which is yeah. the back end of the nasal cavity. That's where that swab touches. So um, when you're taking your ram head out, not that you want to wash, like don't wash that area, but try not to lay it in the mud so that that gets filled with mud because that's where we want to take that swab sample from is the very back part of that nasal cavity. And then in doing that, um, we can run the tests for mycoplasma over pneumonia. OB, yeah. yeah. Cool. So I hear about a jig. You don't, you don't make us dancing for any or anything? It's something to do with the horns, right? Right, yes, the jig. <laughs> there's, there's two um, jigs that we use in BC. Um, so they're known as the Yukon or tuning fork jig. They're, okay. They were developed, uh, you probably anybody who's, who's seen even aging videos or, or measurement videos on, online will have seen that tuning fork jig and that's basically what it looks like. I didn't bring one here, I should have brought one in, but um, the, they work really well for um, bighorn sheep horn curls for assessing that. The reason being is because they use eye sockets and nasal cavities, um, bases of horns as their line reference points for big horns. Uh, in the Yukon, it works similarly because again, the Yukon uses different reference points and so does um, Alaska. For BC thin horns, they're not great because horns are not symmetrical. They're they're like, um, they're different, but they're like antlers, right? Rarely are antlers completely identical on each side. You can be really, really close, but oftentimes they're not identical. And horns are the same sort of thing. They're, they're, they have subtle differences between the left side and the right side. And the Yukon or tuning fork jig for the BC regulation doesn't do a great job at identifying that. You can still do it, so it's a bit of a cumbersome project. So cool. we instead use, um, if there's a ram that gets referred to us, 
Uh, I use something that's, it's, we call it the Skeena jig. It was developed here by Al Eady years ago. And what it allows us to do is accommodate um, differences in horn curl, differences in the way that those horn sheaths come off the forehead of that ram, um, and clearly identify the sagittal plane, which is that split between the left and right hemisphere of the skull. Okay. So we use, um, we use that jig when we have to for um, really close animals or if we're, if we're going to court uh, hmm. to present evidence. Cool. But we wouldn't expect something like that with a thin horn. You, you're not going to get a thin horn put on a jig. Um, is that correct, Bill? Well, it, oftentimes, it, because it's easier to measure, they'll, they'll put a thin horn on the jig because um, it, it supports the headset while they do the length measurements. Um, sometimes, um, for training purposes, you know, the, the biologist will be showing other staff or, or the CI contractor might want to get the hang of using the tuning fork jig and the apparatus. And so they might do that sort of as a learning and development thing. But from, a, uh, uh, from the point of going to court, we would, we would opt uh, for the Skeena jig. Hmm. Okay. Um, Okay, that sounds good. With um, so all, all rams uh, are compulsory inspection. Do we ever get the information back on that? So you have the you're taking that incisor tooth. Do you guys run DNA on that? And do, do we have access to that information if you do run the DNA on it at all, Bill? So we don't. We have not used the teeth for DNA at this point. There there is opportunity to use teeth for genetic analysis. And for things like uh, uh, trace mineral. So each, you can appreciate that a lot of mountain ranges in BC have unique geologies. Those geologies um, feed the plants and, and forage products. And so what those animals ingest can slightly change the trace mineral concentrations in their, in their bones and tissues. And, and that's reflected in the teeth as well. But we have not well, we stockpile the teeth. We've not actually done that next round. In terms of the age, um, I've shared ages for sure. The teeth have come back, and and when I know that a hunter, um, or if there's a note made on the compulsory inspection uh, form by the by whoever's filling that out, that the hunter would would like feedback on that. Um, that's something we can do. The challenge in doing it quickly, though is that it, we stockpile all the teeth from one year and then they get sent down to Matson's lab, um, which is a, a, a professional tooth aging organization. Uh, they do teeth from all over the world and all different species, um, very, very uh, high degree of accuracy. Uh, so we send them down to, and it takes about a year or a year and a half by oh, the wow. time the tooth is submitted before we get the data back. Huh. Okay. Um, Bill, I just want to loop back just quickly. You talked about getting the Moby swab done. Um, there's a couple things there. Um, first of all, it's my understanding that it's a, a regional bio or a biologist that maybe is doing the CI that's going to do it. So it may be not your local CI that that's doing the inspection that's able to do the swab. It has to be a a bio, am I correct in that statement? Yeah, well, for the most part, yes. Um, we have, 
the quality control for those swabs is pretty important. So what, while we found that heads can be pretty slimy, um, it's when you take that swab and you remove that organism or that material from the soup that it's living in, that it becomes really fragile. Hmm. So, you know, some jurisdictions have handed those swabs out over the counter and they've said, anyone who wants one, come and grab it. Hunters um, have responded. They certainly have, have taken a bunch of them, submitted a bunch of samples. Um, the problem is, is because we don't know the life of that sample, we don't know if we get a negative, if it's truly a negative. So what we've opted for in British Columbia is to have um, biologists do those swabs, veterinarians do those swabs, or specific individuals, so some of the CI contractors, for example, um, a couple taxidermists do those swabs for us. Um, but they've been specifically given instruction on how to take them, how to manage and store those swabs. Um, and, and we're really sensitive to that because a false negative is a dangerous piece of information. It's worse than no information. So that's how we've tried to manage that risk in BC because we have budget constraints on the number of, of samples we can send in um, and we don't want to waste those dollars. Okay, good. And the other question I had, Bill, is uh, it's my understanding that um, the the cape still needs to be on. If you remove the cape, then you can't, it's too late. You have to bring the head in intact to get that swab done. Is that correct? So if somebody is on a stone sheep hunt in the back country and they cape their ram out as just a skull, it's not, it's not going to work in that case. Is that correct? No, not always. So, um, okay. I've, I've been able to take some very good samples from, well, when you bring your head in, it, it does need to be skinned um, for horn curl measures because the hide can add five to eight millimeters in length. And depending on the length of hair and the season the cape was taken in, so early season versus late season, um, if your ram is six or seven uh, and it's close to the bridge of the nose, uh, you can avoid, it just avoids a lot of grief. So we ask hunters to skin their heads before they bring them in for CI. But for those individuals that have done it on the hillside, uh, skin their head out on the hillside, I've still been able to get some very good samples, quality samples from, from those. But it boils down to how the hunters handled the head. If he's thrown it in a mud puddle or in the water or something like that, um, those those important parts that we would gather by taking the sample get washed away or get pushed off of that um, sensitive area at the back of the mouth, at the back of the nasal cavity. So um, as long as the hunter's, you know, diligent about sort of protecting that area without actually protecting it, you know, if, if you understand what I'm trying to get at, uh, we can get good samples from that. Cool. Okay, good to know, yeah. Perfect. Um, Steve, did you have any other questions on horn aging uh, at all that is burning in the back of your mind there? No, not at all. Uh, Bill laid things out. It's so much easier to see them in front of you, the way Bill's going over them and showing the uh, difference between a, a real annuli and a false annuli and the, the steps and growth. That's huge for not just me as a new sheep hunter, but I can imagine for somebody who's climbed a mountain a bunch more times than I have. Yeah, the, the key, uh, I think, is when you're looking at a ram, you know, I, 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 the, the closing message I leave with people 
at the workshops down at the AGM is always if you think if you think it might be legal, you know, don't take the risk. Right. You yeah. Need, you think. You need to yeah. Know it's legal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't okay, convince then. yourself of of a bad. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, fantastic, Bill. It's great. I just want to shout out to Ken Grant and uh, Dean Bergen for uh, sending their questions in. Uh, we incorporated them today in the uh, discussion. So thanks, uh, gentlemen, for uh, your questions. Um, I guess before we sign off, Bill, we have this uh, citizen science app, which uh, you were um, directly involved with developing. Um, great app for use for people out in the field and get involved with citizen science. And it's um, we've shared that with the Wild Sheep Society BC members, and I know the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance has been involved with their membership as well. Um, can you just give us a bit of an overview on that and maybe how us as hunters when we're out in the field this fall can help you do your job uh, as a um, as a uh, as the specialist back in the office? Sure. So the the main objective behind that app um, you, you know, I think you were part of that conversation, Kyle. We were we were thinking, well, how can we get better information into the hands of regional biologists? And and the big hole for us really is natal range. We need to. We don't have a lot of. Uh, well, we we don't undertake surveying um, during times when kids and lambs are hitting the ground because we don't want to harass or or cause issues for that ewe, um, and we certainly don't want to affect the survivorship of those lambs and kids after they hit the ground. So we don't survey during that time. It's a bit of a black hole for us, except where we have some caller data. But you can appreciate we don't have caller data on a lot of our populations. So um, because it's an important habitat type, because it's a big hole in terms of our corporate knowledge, uh, the app, the, the, the main goal of this uh, sheep and goat app is to help get people who are on the ground, people that are keen on sheep and mountain goats, to tell us where they're seeing ewes and lambs or nannies and kids. And if, they, if we track that through the year, we'll get a picture of how they're using those local habitats. So don't just confine your observations to that May-June window. Um, share the rest of the season when you see that um, those you and nanny groups um, because that's important information. You can share information around rams as well. Um, it's all value, any, any data is valuable data. Uh, but what I would, what I want people to know is that data is secured. It is not, it's like our compulsory inspection data. Um, it's secured. There are three individuals that have access to that data set and I'm one of them. So it's, um, it's, it's highly monitored. We're not going to use that information to inform uh, people on where they should go and recreate to try and find um, ewes and lambs and, and, and nannies and kids. The objective is to help the biologists uh, inform those other decisions that are happening on the landscape. Um, you know, a huge part of our provincial economic engine is mining and forestry. And so it's important information for them to have with respect to where those natal ranges are and, and the use and timing periods that, that our wildlife use different areas. And more and more we see 
increase backcountry recreation, especially helicopter-supported recreation. And again, informing those decisions around those types of activities um, become really important in reducing the impact to those groups uh, of wildlife, especially those reproductive engines, the, the nannies and the ewes, um, and your future potential, which is the lambs and kids. Fantastic, Bill. And um, I guess uh, we can just include the download where that's included um, with this video at the end of it. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes or whatever. That's probably yeah. just, um, and um, uh, any, I guess that's the best approach. And you can use it on your smartphone, I presume, and it will work uh, when you're offline. So you, you can uh, log your location if you don't happen to have a cell service and then the data gets sent once you're back in um, in range, is that, am I correct in that? Yeah, absolutely. You can also, um, uh, if you see an observation and for whatever reason your location is shut off on, on your uh, smartphone or your smart device, or you get home and you log on to your home computer, you can enter your observations and you can still move that observation pin to the correct location. So while you might be on one side of the valley and you mark your location and you say you're seeing, you know, um, three nannies and, and two kids, um, it's marking your location. So if those animals are actually five or seven kilometers away across a valley and you're seeing them because you have some really good optics, you can uh, either in the smartphone app or in your, your computer website app, um, go in and shift that pin so it accurately reflects the location of where those animals are. That's pretty cool. Fantastic, Bill. Um, okay, so just uh, to wrap things up, any, so you're a new sheep hunter or you want a refresher, uh, any recommendations on where to go for more resources, more information on sheep aging and, and being out in the field and how to get a feel for what's legal and that sort of stuff. Uh, any recommendations or resources that you can point to the hunters to? So, you know, there's, there's a few. There's, there's a bunch of um, individuals who have taken it upon themselves to put that information out there. Um, access whatever you can. Uh, you don't necessarily have to take that person's word for uh, what they've, what they, their opinion of the age of that animal is, um, but it might be useful for you in terms of understanding how they arrived at that age. Uh, the other thing you can do is um, Google different uh, jurisdictional websites. So Alaska, for example, has a really good site. Now remember that it's specific to their regulations but they do have information about aging and what to look for for mature doll sheep. Um, Yukon has information. Uh, certainly a number of the jurisdictions in the South have bighorn sheep information and how to age videos. And there, I think there's a few probably partner organizations from the society and the, and the foundation um, that also have developed their own uh, aging um, uh, social media outreach platforms. So surf around, gather as much information as you can, test or challenge each person's opinion, and um, make sure that you're comfortable with it. And as you learn, 
um, you know what, maybe you'll make a different determination than another person. Uh, it boils down to, to some people are risk prone, some people are risk averse, and I'm risk averse. So if I see an eight-year-old animal and the curls close to the nose, I'm, you know, and I, I'm going to walk away from that, from that fin horn. It's because I don't want to take the chance. And, and I feel good about that. I don't have a problem walking away from that animal. I'm still a less than one club member, but it's because of the choices that I've made. And, and I, don't, I don't hold any um, regret from that. Other people are more um, uh, confident maybe, or, or more quick to, to become confident in their determinations. And um, it, it boils down a lot to um, sort of your exposure and your experience and your general demeanor, really. That makes sense. Yeah, excellent advice, Bill, and I'm with you there. Uh, last year, I was on my sheep hunt, and you know, I think uh, we'd gone quite a while, and we'd seen quite a few rounds, but we're able to get on. And there was one that we uh, we spent basically the day pursuing, and got up to him, and it was one of those things where he's just that close, and he was <laughs> almost certainly eight. But uh, you know, I've always used the adage: if there's any doubt, there is no doubt, right? It's just you can't afford to make a mistake on it. So. Um, yeah, we let him walk and uh, he'll certainly be legal this year and we're going to go back and find him for sure. So, um, um, so in terms of um, other resources, I just wanted to uh, point out that uh, every year at our AGM in Kamloops, we do a horn aging seminar. Uh, Bill, you've been there um, numerous times and done a fantastic job for us. So for our members, if you're a member, come up to the AGM and in fact, you don't even have to be a member. You can attend uh, the Kamloops Convention in March. And uh, we will do the Horn Aging Seminar. We do that every year. It's, uh, it's important education uh, for us as hunters in the field. So anyone that uh, is interested in that, we can't do much for this fall, but certainly for uh, coming years, come to Kamloops and uh, attend the seminars. And there's always great information there. So, uh, Steve, any last questions for Bill? or uh, No, just appreciate, appreciate your time. I certainly learned a lot. Yeah, well, hopefully I didn't talk uh, too much and, and put you to sleep, but oh, it was uh, great. Yeah, you know, just spend as much time you can looking at sheep, um, whether they're alive on the hoof or or whether you know somebody who's got a mount and they're willing to let you come and look at it. Um, it people do make mistakes, so if you take a look at you know the compulsory inspection form says this ram should be ten, but you think it's nine. You know what? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's a mistake made on the CI form and, and don't feel bad about that. Ask questions about it. Um, you know, the one thing that I really hope is that um, when people ask questions that, that um, uh, everybody helps try to provide information along the way. There's, you know, it's better to ask what you think might be perceived as a silly question and get an answer than not ask it and, you know, be left wondering later on. Well, fantastic, Bill. Well, I can't thank you enough. And uh, Steve, thank you for uh, co-hosting today. And uh, just a pleasure always to speak with you, Bill. And, uh, you know, like Steve said, uh, I've sat through many of your seminars and I always lose, uh, learn something. And again, I took some uh, gems away today that are going to be valuable and uh, really appreciate your time and uh, wish you uh, a uh, prosperous uh, fall. And hopefully you have a, uh, you, you get kicked out of less than one club this fall. So thanks, Bill. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much.